So that was uh, gang violence and gang laws. Coming up, we're talking ram raids and robberies. It doesn't get much better, I'm afraid. What is driving our kids to crime? That and more in a moment. That was Kamal Santamaria, the host of TBNZ's Breakfast Show last Monday, segueing out of a long look at what to do about an uptick in gang violence and into what to do about a supposed spate of youth crime that's hogged the headlines lately, including ram raids caught on camera that provided some startling images for the news. And there was plenty more confronting crime content elsewhere in the media too this past week, as we'll hear. On Wednesday, the Herald reported that police are now planning a major gang suppression operation called Cobalt in June. The aim is to put pressure on gangs so they can feel it and the public can see it, one unnamed source told the Herald. And there's certainly been plenty to see, hear and read about all this in our media this past week. But is the sudden spike in crime coverage a symptom of something that really needs urgent attention from the top? Depends which news outlet you've tuned into, as Media Watch's Hayden Donnell discovered. Ram raids, smash and grabs committed by kids. On Q&A tomorrow, we'll ask the experts how to stop the alarming trend. That was Jack Tame introducing last Sunday's episode of Q&A. The program's report followed a week of alarming reports about the raids. Under the front page headline, They're Just Babies, last weekend's Herald on Sunday carried the Children's Commissioner's call for the government to step in and not to put young people on a path to prison but it also carried a sidebar listing what it called kiddie crime capers. A Herald website follow-up described the robberies as a youth crime ram raid spree. The Herald called the raids a crime wave. News Hub called them a ram raid epidemic. And on Today FM, Tover O'Brien went one step further. When I lived in London a few years ago, for nearly two years, it felt like my camera operator and I were covering another terror attack every single week. We were travelling all over Europe, one horror to the next. Terrorists exploited weakness, copycats took inspiration, and hundreds of people died. Thankfully, no one has died as a result of these reckless raids yet, but there is this is still a form of terrorism. It is terror- in that monologue, O'Brien touched on the idea that media coverage could be helping fuel the ram raids. I do fear that the more we talk about it, the more we put it in the news and play the shocking CCTV footage, the more that some morons will think it's choice as to, to copycat those crimes. That sentiment has been expressed by a number of commentators. Also on Today FM, former police detective Lance Burdett told Leah Panapa the media may be contributing to the problem by giving offenders notoriety. So the media have a big part in this, and it's not the media's fault, but it's the way that it could be portrayed perhaps in a different way. The media might want to start thinking about the way, instead of having those action shots of of people going through, of having a lot more interviews with the owners of the shops post-event. Meanwhile on RNZ, Saturday morning host Kim Hill mused that it might help if ram raids were given a name that sounds a little less cool. Ellie Moore backed her call in a column for Stuff where she pointed out that so-called king hits started to sound a lot less kingly when they were dubbed coward punches. Perhaps it would help de-escalate things if the media rebranded ram raids as coward shunts or broken window shopping, but that still wouldn't address a more structural issue with these stories. They tend to paint a picture of a horde of lawless youth thumbing their noses at society. As a result, audiences could be forgiven for thinking the raids are part of a much wider trend and youth crime is on the rise in Aotearoa. In fact, the most recent data from the Ministry of Justice shows the opposite. 
Crime rates for children under 13 and young people 14 to 17 years old have fallen by 65% and 63% respectively over the last decade, a fact pointed out by the Prime Minister on TVNZ's breakfast last Monday. We have seen, undoubtedly, we've seen a, a spike in uh, this kind of activity, and the police have talked about the spike in ram raids. When we look at it in the context of youth offending, we've actually, over a number of years, seen the number of young people um, who are appearing in our youth courts coming down, and the repeat number of those returning coming down. So that's a positive trend. But for this particular activity, we have seen that spike. If audiences have a distorted picture of youth crime rates, that may just be a function of the way news works. The media understandably tends to hone in on the stuff that's exciting or rare. When it comes to crime, that means grisly assaults or audacious misdeeds. No one wants to read about the cars that don't ram through the front window of an old leaming. That hyper-focus on often statistically anomalous events has contributed to a well-studied phenomenon where news audiences tend to believe crime rates are going up, even when they're going down. The same distortions can occur on other topics too. Here's the project host Patrick Gower introducing a story on 35-year-old Hayden Harvey, who contracted pericarditis after taking the Pfizer vaccine. Now, if you got sick after taking the vaccine, what, what would happen if you did get sick after taking the vaccine? And when you tried to get help, everyone just treated you like you were an anti-vaxxer. Now, I want to introduce you to a Kiwi who went through that. And then things got worse, much worse. The project's lead host, Jesse Mulligan, went on to note that myocarditis and pericarditis are much more common from COVID than from the vaccine. But the story nevertheless circulated widely in social media channels devoted to vaccine misinformation, and that does seem to have had an impact. Here's cardiologist Dr Tom Paisley talking to One News about a rise in the number of people turning up to hospitals with what turn out to be unfounded fears they've suffered a vaccine injury. These patients will get a blood test, sometimes they get an ECG, and by far and away the majority both of these tests are normal. Hayden Harvey's story was newsworthy, but covering rare events can leave audiences with the impression that those events are more common than they really are. When it comes to ram raids, some commentators have been raising the spectre of a youth crime wave to reinvigorate calls for tougher penalties on young offenders. Here's News Talk ZB's Heather Duplessy Allen blaming the raids on lighter sentences for young offenders and a more strict police pursuit policy, despite, again, both policies being in place during a large reduction in youth crime. We're seeing, you know, ram raids are not new. Kids getting away with lighter sentences than adults is not new. Crime bosses using kids for organised crime because of those lighter sentences is not new. And it doesn't help that the youth justice system is reportedly overloaded. But making it harder for cops to do their jobs, effectively tying their hands behind the backs, as National says, making it harder for them to catch these kids is almost certainly not helping. On News Hub Nation, Annabelle Lee Mather cautioned against that sort of reaction. But I think it's important that we don't overblow it into this huge community issue when actually there's plenty more rangatahi in our communities doing awesome mahi, staying home and doing their homework and, and making nice dancing videos on the TikTok. So did Professor Ian Lambie on the Q&A programme we highlighted at the top of this segment. We don't think we're going soft on crime. I think we need to go smart on crime. And smart on crime is thinking about how do we want fewer victims, better use of our taxpayers' dollars 
and what the evidence says about how to actually intervene with this group of children. And really what we need to do is look at, you know, how do we deal with children that are between the ages of 5 and 14 years old that are out of education, have behaviour problems, significant abuse and care issues, and what do we do and how can we provide the support and the interventions that are actually going to change their behaviour and improve their life outcomes. Katie Doyle, a reporter for Potiaki at Stuff, made similar points in a story about the drivers of youth offending and what can be done to divert young people away from the justice system. She talked to us about the media potentially creating a misleading narrative about youth crime and why that can have significant consequences. Youth crime is not ballooning, out-of-control situation, but the headlines would make you think otherwise. I mean, I've seen headlines like out-of-control youth and... Auckland not safe anymore as a youth affairs reporter. I've covered something called the Youth Justice Indicator Summary Report. It's found that youth crime rates for Tamariki aged 10 to 13 fell by something like 65% in the space of about a decade. And for Rangatahi, it fell 63% in that same period. While the headlines may make you think that youth crime is ballooning completely out of control, the statistics sort of don't back up that narrative. It's a hard one, though, isn't it? Because these are obviously legitimate stories, really concerning pictures, as you say, victims involved whose businesses have been devastated by this. How do you run stories about these kinds of things that don't give the audience this misleading or distorted impression about youth crime rates? I think it's about context around the drivers of youth crime, and that could be statistics or spokespeople. I mean, there are so many spokespeople you could go to about youth crime. There's Oranga Tamariki, there's police, there's youth workers. That can be difficult from a journalism perspective, right? Because we have to deal with things like word limit. And you're trying to stack up information as things are happening in real time. But there are little ways that you can just add context. I also think that something, and you sort of touched on it that we need to think about as journalists is our headlines. It can sometimes be quite easy to do an interview and take sort of the hardest quote or the most intense quote from that interview and make it the headline. We actually need to be really careful that just because a quote will probably get a lot of clicks, that it's actually telling the real story, that it's not just something someone said that doesn't really, I guess, portray the real situation. Yeah, absolutely. There's actually been quite a lot of good reporting on this stuff. I think of Georgina Campbell's reporting at The Herald. It's really nuanced. It carries, you know, quotes from the Children's Commissioner about how we shouldn't drive these people into prison and that will be counterproductive. But then the headline above them is often something like kitty crime capers or crime spree. And do we need to recognise a bit more that lots of people research shows will never read past the headline? Uh, Headlines are such a hard one, right? Because media companies want clicks and they want people to click on the stories and they want people to read the stories. I think if the story is really well written, people will read past the headline. Well, you'd hope they would. I think sometimes you don't need that intense headline that just doesn't portray the story. I think we need to be a bit more responsible around it. As you say, we highlight the sensational, the alarming, and that's fair enough in a way. No one wants to read about all the cars that didn't ram through the front window of a Noel Leeming. Can highlighting the unusual and the sensational, just in general though, give people a distorted idea of what's actually taking place in society? I think what happens is these unusual things happen and the media covers them, and the media oftentimes covers them quite well, I think, and there is a lot of nuance. 
but once the sort of spate of something finishes, the coverage completely drops off. We need to sort of make sure that we're actually continuing coverage, even if it's just little stories here and there, rather than sort of just doing the main thing and then moving on. We've already had commentators in the media using these recent raids to call for harsher sentences on youth offenders, for instance. Is there a problem with giving people the wrong impression about this sort of stuff? And can it lead to really bad policy outcomes? I think it can. We as journalists have a responsibility to the truth and we have a responsibility to tell things like it is. And we need to be doing that. And I don't think even slightly distorting something is really acceptable. And I don't think it's what audiences deserve. What media outlets have provided that context and nuance during the recent Ram Raid coverage? I think they all did, but I think they all did it eventually. When I was in my old job at Radio New Zealand, I was a general news reporter, so I was always in the coverage. In my role now, I was sort of able to sit back and just watch it. And something I noticed was that there was a real pattern with how the things were reported. So we had at the start, the Ram Raids are happening and there was murmurings about youth. And then we had the this is being driven by youth and we sort of had some headlines like youth out of control. And then we had the Charwell incident and that was on the 28th when police said a seven-year-old among some others had been found holding some stolen toys and other goods. And it was at that point where I noticed a real narrative shift in the media with how we were covering it in regards to young people. And I think on the 29th, the Toba show had sort of multiple interviews about the ram raids and the crime. I feel as though when young people get to a certain point, we tend to lose our empathy and our sympathy a little bit. And I think had the people involved in Chartwell been 15, 16, 17, we may not have seen that shift in the reporting. There's been a bunch of commentary in the media about maybe it would help if Ram Raids got a rebrand to something that sounds a bit worse and doesn't give the offenders notoriety. Do you buy that? Probably not. I don't think that the young people going out to do this are necessarily thinking, I'm doing a Ram Raid. I do think the word Ram Raid gets clicks. But again, I don't think that they're going for it for like mainstream media notoriety. I don't think young people going out and doing ram raids on like a Friday night are then picking up the Weekend Herald to see what page they made it on. I think it's more of a social media notoriety aspect um, it seems that they're going for. And that's something I've seen talked about quite a bit in the media. How much of an impact is the fact that there's just amazing and startling pictures uh, and footage play into the fact that this has become a trend of which which has kind of generated a bit of a moral panic. And how much does the fact of those pictures uh, influence the quite startling headlines that we see? Because print media don't have the option of running the footage and they want to convey how shocking the footage is. Yeah, the, the videos are astonishing. And I definitely think it, it's astounding to see the cars smashing through the glass and I don't know what you do there because the footage is important and it's an important part of the story and I don't think it would necessarily be responsible to just cast it aside um, and say, oh, we're not going to show that. So I I don't really know what you do in that situation, to be honest. So if someone rams a shop tomorrow and you're covering it 
from a news reporter's perspective, you know, you're in a rush. Uh, what are the little things that you could include in your story that would help to give your readers a more accurate impression of the context of this? So, I, I mean, you'd start with the victim voice. I Personally, I would. And then I would maybe go to someone like a youth worker maybe in the area to say, you know, oh, well, what's happening here? What's what what are the things that are happening in your community that may be causing this? And what are the things that your community are doing to, to try and sort of mitigate this? And I think that's really easy. Like, it's quite easy to, to go and talk to people. That's sort of our job. Um, and so, yeah, that's what I would do. Or if you're in the biggest rush, just have a look around for some stats. There are lots around. You can type into Google, you know, youth crime stats, crime statistics. Um, there are ways to do it. Even, even if you're in a rush. And honestly, even if it took a little bit more time, I think it's worth it. I think it's worth it to take more time to do a story and get it right and do it responsibly than take less time and tell half a story. Hey, thanks so much for joining me, Katie. Thank you. That was Hayden Donnell talking to Stuff's Potiaki reporter Katie Doyle, formerly the Youth Affairs reporter at RNZ. Last Monday, alongside reports of the so-called youth crime wave, the Herald also reported nearly 100 Kiwis have been shot dead in just four years amid an explosion in gang warfare and firearms violence. And the headline on that referred to shocking gun statistics as gang warfare and firearms violence erupt. But as the story went on to note, 51 of those 92 people killed in the last four years were shot dead not by gangs, but by white supremacist terrorist Brenton Tarrant in March 2019. Now that doesn't mean that guns and gangs are not a potentially lethal problem. The Herald said that figures obtained under the OIA showed there were just 69 murders committed across Aotearoa that involved a firearm in the 10 years to 2017. But murder, attempted murder, aggravated robbery or assault crimes involving a firearm almost doubled last year, the paper said. Worrying stuff. But it didn't say how much of this was down to gangs, which were so prominent in the headline in the intro of that story. Now, the same day, the Herald also carried an article by Dr Jared Gilbert, one of New Zealand's foremost experts in gangs and crime, in which he warned politicians were beating the drum on gangs and guns. And that's because he just released a report all about anti-gang laws that were made in haste 25 years ago, described by TVNZ's breakfast show like this. A number of laws have hardly been used in this time. One of them, uh, which is habitually associating with a violent offender, this is from when the legislation was introduced back in 1998, up to 2020, you can see it's only been used twice back in 2003. And if we look at a similar piece of legislation, which is called habitually associating with a drug offender, actually it's never been used between 1998 and 2020. Not the once. So you see why they're calling it ineffective. Now, after that, Dr Gilbert told TVNZ's Breakfast Show it wasn't for nothing that politicians acted back in 1996. A bit like we're experiencing now, there had been an upswing in serious gang violence, he said, especially in the South Island. The mayor of Invercargill is calling for residents to remain calm following escalating violence between two gangs, Black Power and the white supremacist gang, the Road Knights. Police are investigating two recent incidents in the city, the latest on Sunday night when a van was shot at after passing the Black Power headquarters. 
Last week, the Black Power Gang house was sprayed with bullets and homemade bombs were tossed at it. No one was injured, but there are fears it's just a matter of time before someone is. That was RNZ's morning report in early 1996, when the co-host Mike Hosking pointed out the aggro was making headlines in the newspapers as well. Inside the paper, the shooting of a Black Power member with one of, was one of three gang-related incidents in Invercargill yesterday. As well, two rival gang associates fought in the foyer of Invercargill District Court and police raided a gang headquarters. Now across the Tasman, new federal treasury... Last Monday, Dr Gilbert told TVNZ Breakfast that what happened a quarter of a century ago could happen again here with an election coming up. Right now, the parallels to what was happening in 1996 are very, very clear. And so I would predict, in fact, I'll take any bet with any viewer um, out Mm. there, that we will see a big legislative drive before next year's election. And if we don't expect better from our politicians, we will get the same results. Dr Gilbert's Law Foundation-funded study, called Making Laws in a Panic, noted that thanks to effective policing back in 1996, that South Island gang violence had actually died down long before the laws were changed. But while Dr Gilbert said he hoped for better from politicians now, 25 years later, what about the media? His Making Laws in a Panic report analysed bulletins, headlines and articles from 1996 to see which arguments were covered and, crucially, which ones were not. And he concluded that the main problem in the mid-1990s was a highly charged political environment driven by high-profile events. Now, back then, one politician became the most outspoken anti-gang voice, opposition Labour MP and former Prime Minister Mike Moore, whose use of the media was, according to Dr Gilbert, powerful and deliberate and intended to support his calls for political action. And Mike Moore himself confirmed it in these words. I was pumping it all the time and the public was getting outraged. You've got to build it up and then get the government to respond to it. Mike Moore was a constant presence in the media, the report says, and he also began writing long opinion pieces for daily newspapers. In one from the New Zealand Herald, Mike Moore claimed, we are engaged in a fundamental battle to preserve peace and civil order in New Zealand. And he also told reporters at the time that gangs are no longer groups of hoons who smash the occasional pub, they've graduated into serious organised crime. And Mike Moore was still at it in 2007, penning a piece for the Herald claiming... Action only emerges if it's on the front page and appearing in opinion polls. Now, Dr Gilbert interviewed Mike Moore at length about all this back in 2004 and concluded that he had a shallow understanding of the gangs. And Mike Moore also told Dr Gilbert that his commentaries came largely from police sources and were carried in the media without question. Now, Dr Gilbert's report says that back in 1996, it was only after the moral panic was long over that alternative views appeared as proposals for gang laws progressed throughout Parliament. Now, in the Herald this week, Jared Gilbert said that what was occurring back in 1996 is remarkably similar to what's occurring now. New gangs are entering established territories, leading to significant violence. And in the lead-up to an election, politicians responded back then... I'll bet you anything you like, he said, we'll see the same before next year's election. But it seems we're already getting some of that in the media now. Twenty years ago, TVNZ launched what has proved to be one of its most popular factual shows ever and what's become the country's most-watched cop show by miles, Police 10-7. 
Gruff Detective Inspector Graham Bell warned people to be on the lookout for scumbags who committed unsolved crimes and known crims on the loose that they were on the lookout for. And you didn't see anything the police didn't want you to see. They had editorial input and the power of veto over the producers and the broadcaster. Now, back in 2007, TVNZ's chief executive at the time, Rick Ellis, hailed Police 107 as a programme that made Māori visible in prime time, clearly not conscious that it was not usually in a good way. And at times, TVNZ has made the show sound like great fun. It promoted specials aired over the summer before last, for example, as a whole season of summer mayhem. But the show was dealt a big blow last year by one single tweet from Auckland City Councillor Efeso Collins, who was reacting not to the show itself, but an advert for it. TVNZ did a cutaway shot, so they were promoing uh, Police 107, and their cutaway shot was a still picture of some brown young people. And my guess is they're Māori and Pacific, and there were a few of them in that cutaway shot. And it got me really riled up again. I don't watch that rubbish in the first place. But what why it got me so angry, Dale, is because the subtle messages that it's feeding to those people who are watching the show is that if you're brown and young, you are brutal thuggish and a criminal. And I'm tired of those messages. Last year, FSO Collins went on to tell Radio Waitea's Dale Husband Police 107 was chewing gum TV with no taste and no flavour, and he said it was now time that TVNZ spat it out. Others, who also admitted they don't watch the show either, backed his calls to scrap the show because of what they said was racial stereotyping. And among them was Race Relations Commissioner Ming Foon, who told News Talk ZB that the makers should have evened up the ethnicity of the people featured in it. Well, they can target who they're filming, actually, Mike. Yeah. They can actually quotarise the, uh, the filming. So you would argue what we'll do is we'll have, OK, we've just edited up three brown people being or doing whatever for the programme, so we now need to find three white people. Is that how that would go? Why not? Now, at the time, the show's makers, production company Screen Time, strongly denied that Police 107 was racist or unfair to any ethnicity. I feel enormously proud of it, and the team who produced Police 107 worked incredibly hard to ensure that... Um, the content is accurate, that the content is culturally correct, not just a stereotype. I mean, there's many, many, many cultures. I mean, all across the country, and we're filming in Invercargill, you know, right up to Northland. It was Police 107's producer, Philly DeLacy, talking to RNZ one year ago. Now, back then, the police and the Police 107 producers jointly insisted the programme merely films calls as they came in with our judgement and that the show was an accurate snapshot of how Kiwis interact with the police. And they also pointed out it was a former South Auckland iwi liaison police officer of Tongan origin, Rob Lemoto, who was presenting the programme these days. Now, last year, TVNZ would only say it was listening to the feedback and it launched an independent review of the programme. And TVNZ said that review found that in general, Māori and Pacific individuals who participated in the show were fairly portrayed, but that the show could do more to actively discourage negative stereotypes. It also identified further areas for improvement, filming outside Auckland more, including a broader range of content and communities in each episode, and embedding Te Tiriti o Waitangi into the production. And a pro-presenter, Sam Wallace, has been added to the series as a co-host. And perhaps in response to that trailer which annoyed Efeso Collins a year ago, the review has also suggested protections around the promotion of the show, implemented by TVNZ, with racial bias training conducted. 
Well, this week, TVNZ aired the first episode of the rebooted and renamed show, 107 Aotearoa. Hello, just play. We're restoring law and order for Thursdays. Just have to put cuffs on you just as a safety point while you're in the car. You sure they're comfortable? With brand new 107 Aotearoa. Have you got your license on you? Uh, that's not your license. That was the promo for the show, promising a new vibe, but last Thursday on TVNZ2, the new vibe seemed pretty much like the old Police 107 at first. The first yarn on Thursday's show was a drunk and dangerous driver in Hawke's Bay, lucky to survive a late-night crash. Look at that. How does someone how just... Do you, how does he walk out of that? Eh? Uh, yeah, we should be definitely dealing with a fatal right now. That was the number one thing on my mind. Getting the out of that car. Yeah. Then there was a plea for help with a missing person. Investigators have pieced together Antonio's last movements and know that he backed his car into a ditch near Langholm Beach at about 8pm on Monday the 15th of November 2021. And then there was the familiar serious crime reconstruction bit, this one about a serious shooting in suburban Auckland recently that needs public input. And it's only by pure luck that we haven't had multiple fatalities on this occasion. They know that whoever's responsible for this will have talked about it. You need to be the one courageous enough to come forward and provide information to police. After that was the familiar wanted cases, two blokes whose ethnicity wasn't mentioned in their descriptions, including one wanted in connection with a recent headline-making shooting in downtown Wellington. And after that, it was back on the road again, this time in central Otago, for another dodgy car, a rule-bending driver and a fashion crime. What the... <laughs> Love the footwear, mate. Pardon? Oh, that. Did you find what was making all the noise? Just that. Ah. That guy was wearing novelty hamburger slippers, if you were wondering, but his bigger problem was that he'd breached his restricted licence conditions twice within two weeks of getting the licence. And to finish, 10.7 Aotearoa's debut episode had a weird story from Dunedin about a landlord who called the cops because he thought there was someone hiding in a locked storage room. There's your handle. Awesome. <laughs> sorry. No, don't be sorry. Thank yeah. you. No, no worries, mate. Excellent. Cheers. Cool. The guy had concerns that there was someone uh, potentially behind a locked door because the door's never been locked. It's in his house. But yeah, he thought he could smell a bad smell and he thought someone was basically dumped there. And um, yeah, there's nothing behind the door. So happy days. And a happy ending of sorts for the first 10-7 Aotearoa after all the unhappy days a year ago when the show was accused of racism and stereotyping. And on the basis of that first episode on Thursday, not a whole lot's changed beyond the presentation and the name of the show, though no one's ethnicity was described or identified at all in the programme, and there were no identifiably Māori or Pacifica people on the wrong side of the law depicted in episode one. But the main thing was that, apart from that constable doing a bit of violence to that locked door in Dunedin, there was no aggro of any kind at all in the show, or any confrontations. Now, if that's typical of the new vibe thereafter, after that review sparked by stereotyping claims, it may not satisfy the hardcore Police 107 fans who loved seeing the so-called mongrels and scumbags caught in the act back in the day and getting their comeuppance on camera. Still, the softer style did make for a smoother segue into the following show on TVNZ2 on Thursdays, Dog Squad Puppy School, which also features the police and their pooches in parts. This week, Simon Bridges bowed out of politics with a valedictory speech in Parliament in which he had a message or two for the media. Our press gallery can hunt as a pack. Okay, then there's Barry. But basically, <laughs> as a pack. 
And I say to you, if every one of you has the same basic position on a complex matter, you are probably all engaged in group thinking, quite probably wrong. And on Midweek Media Watch this week, we took a look at that on The Lately Show with Karen Hay. We also looked at how taxing the rich became a hot topic for political reporters this week, a new poll picking out public suspicion about public funds for private media companies and tough times for data journalism, and also two Kiwi sportswomen telling it like it is in the news, including golfer Lydia Ko, who stumped NBC's golf guy on the greens with this. That time of the month, I know the ladies watching <laughs> are probably like, yeah, I got you. <laughs> Uh, thanks. <laughs> I know you're lost for words, Jerry. <laughs> that was on Midweek Media Watch this week, available for you on the Media Watch page of the RNZ website, our section of RNZ's app, or it's in our podcast feed, available for you wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back again with Midweek Media Watch on Lately with Karen Hay at about 10.30 next Wednesday night, and then back again with more Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.